Hello, crackheads. You're listening to Paranormal Cracktivity. I'm Justin. This is Dreek. How are you feeling, Justin? I'm feeling fantastic. How are you feeling, Dreek? I feel like I've drank a whole bottle of wine, but the only thing I've been drinking tonight is water. Oh, wow. I feel like I've been drinking some Cabernet because that's what I've been drinking. Absolutely. Positively, lutely. But not for very long, because the, the first glass of Cabernet that I had spilled an entire glass right on top of my backpack. So we're off to a great start here today, folks, but that's okay, because my second glass is just a little bit fuller than the first one. <laughs> Do you have dirt floors? Or is it like an actual floor? No, actually, there's grass. Grass grows on the floor. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. <laughs> I have I have wood floors. The wood the floors are made of wood. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> Yay! So Justin, do you want to guess what this week's episode is about? Who I love this part. Um, I is it about a serial killer? It is not about a serial killer. Okay, so it's probably it's probably about a murderer or a murderer. Has nothing to do with murder. A cult. Nothing to do with the cult. Oh, goodness. Oh. It's an unsolved mystery. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm so excited. I can't wait. I am, too. Are you ready for what I'm going to cover this week? Oh, I'm so ready. Okay, yes. Yes, I'm ready. This week, we're going to talk about the Isabella Gardner Museum Heist, the largest museum heist ever. What? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. Okay, so let's start off with um explaining who exactly Isabella Isabella Gardner was. So Isabella Gardner was a leading American art collector, philanthropist, and a patron of the arts. Um Isabella was born in New York City on April 14th in 1840. She was the daughter of a wealthy linen merchant named David Stewart, and her mother's name was Adelia Stewart. I think that's how you say it. Adelia. Adelia. Anyway, so she, like a lot of wealthy kids, grew up in Manhattan. And from the age of 5 to 15, she attended a nearby academy for girls where she studied art, music, dance, as well as French and Italian. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Let's see. I only studied music and art when I was in school, and I barely got Spanish. Anyway, so her attendance at Grace Church in New York exposed her to religious art, religious music. And at the age of 16, she and her family moved to Paris, where she was enrolled in a school for American girls. Oh, wow. So in 1858, she ended up returning back to New York. And shortly after returning, her former classmate, Julia Gardner, invited her to Boston. Um, This is where she ended up meeting Julia's brother, Jack Gardner. Um, He was only three years older than her, and he was the son of John L. Gardner and Catherine E. Gardner, and was one of Boston's most eligible bachelors. So this mostly takes place in Boston, and I just could not help but to think about Ash and Elena. Oh yeah, we love we love morbid. We love to see it. Absolutely. 
So every time I see Boston, I just get Ash and Elena. Ash and, Ash Elena. and Elena. Boston. Boston. <laughs> so they ended up marrying at Grace Church on April 10th, 1860. And they lived in a house that Isabella's father gave them, which was at 152 Beacon Street in Boston. Imagine having your father give you a house for your wedding gift. In Boston. In Boston. Like, I'm just wow. going to give you a house for you and your husband to live because I just have a boatload of money. I wouldn't mind. So they stayed there, actually, for the rest of Jack's life. Um, Jack and Isabella ended up having one son, was born on June 18th, 1863. But the son ended up passing away from pneumonia in 1865. Oh, no. And a year later, in 1866, Isabella suffered a miscarriage and was told she could never have children ever again. Oh, that's so tough. I know. I feel like I feel so sad. Mm -hmm. Um, Her close friend and her sister-in-law died about the same time. So sis isn't getting any breaks. Yeah, that's so the really person tough. that. Yeah, the person that introduced her to her husband KO'd. But she still her... has her husband with her. Um let's see. We'll figure out when Jack dies, I think. Okay. So Isabella came became extremely depressed. Naturally. Naturally. And she ended up withdrawing from society. So on the advice of doctors, her and Jack traveled to Europe in 1867. So Isabella was so ill that she had to be taken abroad the ship. That's not abroad. She had to be taking, taken aboard the ship on a stretcher. Oh, no. Um, the couple spent almost a year just traveling, visiting Scandinavia and Russia. So spending... Sorry, do you may have said this. What was she sick with again? Um... I think she was just sick with depression. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But oh, so she needed a stretcher for her depression. I just like she could not get the shit together. Damn, that's some like, that's some serious stuff right there. Wow. Like back to back to back. Like, that's she hard. just couldn't do it. That's hard. I don't know why when you said stretcher immediately I was like, oh, eighteen hundreds. She had probably had consumption. So how is she like hiking around in Norway or wherever? <laughs> she was just so distraught that they literally had to bring her on the boat on the stretcher. Okay. She's like, okay. I cannot walk. Okay, now I get it. I get it. <laughs> I really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Justin's like, the bitch got consumption. <laughs> what can you do? Anyway, there's nothing, literally nothing. It's 18, <laughs> what is it, 67? <laughs> she, she ate too much. <laughs> um. So the couple spent almost a year just traveling. They visited Scandinavia and Russia, but they spent most of their time in France. And more specific paris um the trip had the desired effect on isabella's health and she became more outgoing and she viewed this as a turning point in her life it was on this trip that she began her lifelong habit of keeping scrapbooks of her travel of her mm. travels um in 1876 isabella and jack gardner visited the middle east central europe and paris again so beginning in the late 1800s, they traveled frequently across America, Europe, and Asia to discover foreign cultures and to expand their knowledge of the art world around them, which I'm like, 
go off sis because like you had the money to do so yeah i wish i had the money just to like experience different cultures and different art and different music Mm -hmm. and to make that kind of contribution yeah absolutely and she seems like a very well cultured woman Mm -hmm. i don't know if she was racist but she seems like a very well cultured woman it'll just be like a like a cherry on the sunday if she wasn't racist anyway Mm -hmm. so she was traveling traveling around the whole world and she was just getting all of these experiences of music and art from different cultures and Jack and Isabella would take more than a dozen trips abroad over the years, keeping them out of the country for a total of 10 years. Oh, okay. So again, just that lifestyle. Yeah, just that lifestyle. So the earliest works in Gardner's collection were accumulated during their trips to Europe, especially. And in 1891, she started to focus on European fine art. After inheriting, hold up. After inheriting, in, inheriting, 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 her daddy, her, <laughs> her daddy inherited to her. <laughs> I'm just gonna say, her daddy gave her 1.75 million dollars. Oh, and whoa. And this was in 1891, so this is the equivalent of. today. Oh my gosh. What? What? Where does that... Anyway. How does that kind of... I I never even thought that that kind of money existed back then. Like, what did he pay in, like, gold and diamonds and rubies? Like... No, he handed that bitch a check. I'm just kidding. I don't know. I mean, it had to have been like properties and stuff, maybe in addition to that money. Oh my gosh, that's so much. And on top of that, he gifted them a house for their wedding. Anyway. Dang. So one of the first pieces that they were able to acquire was the concert by Vermeer, which was painted in 1664. And they purchased this at a Paris auction house in 1892 for... Actually, I'm going to let you guess. How much do you think Isabella and Jack paid for the concert by Vermeer? How much do you think? One million dollars. One million in 1892? Yes. Or one Wait. million in today? Oh, 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 oh. Uh, uh, yeah, in 1892. They paid $6,000 for the piece. Oh, my gosh. Wait, what? They That's paid $6,000 for the concert by Johannes Vermeer. Which is probably like, what, $2 million now? It's only $201,476. Wait. Oh, dang. I really, it's a little I, bit over $200,000. I really blew it out of the water there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Justin's like, she paid $1 million. I was like, this painting must be priceless. <laughs> so she also collected other... um. She also collected from other places abroad, such as Europe, Egypt, Turkey, and the Far East. Mm. The Gardner collection includes work, works by some of Europe's most important artists, such as Botticelli, Titian, Angelico, and Velasquez, 
Um, some of the works that she acquired were Botticelli's Madonna and the Child with an Angel, Titian's Rape of Europa, Angelico's Dormition and Assumption of the Virgin, and Diego Velazquez's King Philip the Fourth of Spain. Huh. Which these sound like European art. I loved I love to hear love to hear about it. <laughs> she purchased some of her collection on her own, but often she she had to ask her male colleagues, like her business partners and stuff, to purchase on her behalf because it was uncommon for women to participate in art collecting. Oh well, color me shocked. So she had to go to these basically men and be like, Hey, they're not gonna let me buy this painting because, you know, I don't have a dingling. Can you buy it for me? And I'll just wow. pay for it. Which I mean, like, go off, sis. I mean, anyway. So after asking her business colleagues to purchase art for her, in 1896, Isabella and Jack recognized that their house was not sufficient enough for their growing art collection. After Jack's sudden death in 1898, Isabella realized their shared dream of building a museum for the treasures could start. So imagine having so much art that you couldn't fit it into your house. You had to literally buy a whole museum for it. That is a problem I would like to have. Actually, I already have too many problems, so I don't want any more. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she ended up purchasing land for the museum in the Marshy Fenway area of Boston, Ash and Atlanta, you know where that is. And she hired architect Willard T. Sears to build a museum modeled on the Renaissance palaces of Venice. Oh. So Gardner was deeply involved in every aspect of the design, even though Sears was the architect. She would like pinpoint things that she wanted. And so she was very detailed and she was very involved with the architecture and like the building of it, of the museum itself. Um, so, and a cool thing about the building is that the building completely surrounds a glass covered garden courtyard. And it's the first of its kind in America. How cool. So Gardner intended the second and third floors to be galleries wait i'm gonna say that again galeria galeria i don't know what i meant by that anyway so a large music room originally spanned the first and the second floors on one side of the building but gardner later split the room to make space for a display so she could display a large john singer sergeant painting called El Jalejo on the first floor and tapestries on the second floor. Oh, so wow. I, I really thought that you were going to say that it was going to be a dead, <laughs> a dead body. <laughs> what? <laughs> because just like last time I was like, they displayed his body, his mummified corpse. And you were like, my, my, my case has something to do with that. And then when you said this, this is where she displayed, oh. that's the first place my brain went. <laughs> Oh, I have another case that displays a dead body. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Don't worry, we're getting there. Okay. <laughs> so I think in all, the building ended up having four floors. And like I said, it has this beautiful courtyard that's in the center of the museum, which I think 
I've seen pictures of it and I just think it's so beautiful and I absolutely want to put this museum on my bucket list. Oh, it's wow. just amazing. And everything that's in the museum belonged to Jack and Isabella Gardner. So they had a, they had enough to fill four stories with artwork. Wow, that is incredible. At this point in the story, Isabella is still alive, is that right? She is. Is he? So so after the building was ready, Gardner spent a year installing her collection according to her personal aesthetic. And the museum privately opened on January 1st, 1903, with a grand opening celebration featuring a performance by the members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Oh, no way. Absolutely. She just had that kind of money. What did they, do you know what they played? I don't know what they played, actually. I should have looked into that. I think. I can, I can find that out. What did Maybe. you say? Remember, okay, give me the details again. 1903, uh, you said. Grand Ohio. opening of the Isabella Gardner Museum in 1903. But it also was a private event, so I don't know if there was like a program or I don't know. But okay. you want to know what was on the menu? What was on the menu? Donuts and champagne. Oh my goodness, that's my kind of party. It's It's not... I mean, the music is my kind of party. The donuts. I don't know about the champagne. <laughs> why is that? Why is that? I don't know why you would say that. Oh, Justin. Oh, Justin. Oh, um, oh, oh. We just. I just have a bad experience with bubbly wines. Um. Okay. Oh, wait. Here we go. Oh my goodness. Okay. So the pieces performed that night are listed on a program preserved in the museum archives. Isabella's choice of the overture to Mozart's fantastical opera Die Zauberflöte. Oh. <gasps> How amazing. An E flat? That's um, so cool because Mozart comes back at the end. Oh my gosh, remember that. That's fan that's so interesting. That is so interesting. Um, let's see. I'm choosing music from a work here. Oh, series of gardens, blah blah blah. Yeah, Dietz Aberfurta. Uh let's see, there's a Bach Chorale, uh Chanson Vivant Symphonic Poem. Don't know what that is. Never heard of that. And then uh Schumann Overture, Scherzo, and Finale. So there we go. That is so cool because Mozart does come back. So remember I said that. And it, and also it says here that Isabella chose those pieces. So that's also pretty interesting. She seems like she was in charge of a lot of things. She was, she, and what was like her you, sign? Like you were saying, she was very, uh, uh, what's it, educated. She was very, very educated. So obviously she, you know, knew all about music too. So she was born April 14th. What would her sign be? What's her sign? A Taurus? No, you're, aren't you a Taurus? No. Ooh. My Gemini. I knew that, actually. I really did know that. She's an Aries. Oh, shit. No wonder. <laughs> okay, so she was an Aries. I was thinking she would be a Capricorn because she seems in, in control of everything. Anyway, I digress. So they had the Boston Symphony Orchestra perform, and they ate champagne and donuts. So it, it opened to the public months later with a variety of paintings, drawings, furniture, and other objects dating from ancient Egypt to Matisse. The museum is still arranged with a variety of textiles, furniture, and paintings from floor to ceiling. And every, every way that the pieces are hung, Isabella hung those pieces the way she wanted to every and they're still that way today oh wow how fascinating 
So in 1919, Isabella suffered the first of a series of strokes. And she died five years later on July 17th, 1924, at the age of 84. She is buried in the Gardner family tomb at Mount Auburn Cemetery, located in Watertown in Cambridge. And she's buried between her husband and her son. Oh. In her will, she created an endowment of $1 million and outlined stipulations for support of the museum, including that the permanent collection not be significantly altered. In keeping with her philanthropic nature, her will also left sizable bequests to the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, Industrial School for the Crippled and Deformed Children, Animal Rescue League of Boston, and Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. So she she was just a philanthropist. She just like, Uh, because she didn't have any kids. That's incredible. Like, oh my goodness. So she was a devout Anglo-Catholic, and she requested in her will that the Cowley Fathers celebrate an annual memorial requiem mass for the repose of her soul in the museum chapel. This duty is now performed each year on her birthday. On her birthday, not her death day? No. Celebrate, Celebrate her life, not her death. Well, yeah, but she wanted it to be done on her death day. Is that right? The requiem. Um, it it just says. You said requiem. Just... You said requiem, right? Yes, she Re- wanted a requiem, requiem perform. Requiem was a mass for her death. Yeah. So why would they do it? Anyways, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a question for the for the for the upper heads. This is for above the, me. This is above my pay grade. <laughs> Absolutely. So even though it is a requiem. Which also comes back and comes back later in this. Oh my goodness! Um, it's performed on her birthday, and her life motto, which I just think is amazing, is um, "C'est mon plaisir," which means "It is my pleasure" in oh. French. And this appears um, above the central porter to the Isabella Gardner Museum. Oh, that is so sweet. C'est mon plaisir. I'm that's that's my new catchphrase. It was my pleasure. It's just so lovely. And so right now the Isabella Gardner Museum houses over 15,000 pieces of art. Incredible. Hmm. So Isabella sounds like a great woman. Yeah, wow. And what's about to happen next? I feel like she doesn't deserve this. So we are going to talk about the heist of the Isabella Gardner Museum. Oh my goodness, I'm so ready. So, on the night of the heist, there were supposed to be two security guards. And this night was March 18th, 1990. So on the night of the heist, there were supposed to be two security guards. One of them, his name was Richard Abbott, and the other, he's just known as Randy. He, he, he has never given his last name. And it's just recently that he's done interviews about this heist. But he just refers to himself as Randy. Understandable. So, Abbott, the first guy, he was a music school dropout. And he was a part of a rock band. Relatable. So, he 
played in his rock band by night. I mean, he played in his rock band by day. And at night, he was a security officer at the Isabella Garden Museum. Rocking by day and rolling by night. Absolutely. He said that he would even sometimes show up to work drunk or high. Oh, so I was right on the money. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely was rolling. Rolling by night. (laughs) Um, And I have in my notes... Um, I personally wouldn't do that if I was in a building with art that cost more than $500 million and I'm the security on dude, security on guard. I feel like if part of your, um, title is security, then you should have a sense of responsibility. You know, I don't know. In my, I, that's how I would feel if I had that title. I definitely wouldn't want to go to inside of a place and be too, you know, What's it? What's the word I'm looking for? Inebriated. Sure. Yeah. Too inebriated to do my job correctly. Too too inebriated. <laughs> and we'll see later that Abbott, he just seems like he just really didn't give a shit really about his job. Randy. No, Abbott. He just seems like he didn't give a shit about his job. Absent. Oh wait. So Randy was the rocker, right? Randy's the no. rocker. We haven't talked about Randy yesterday. We're still on Abbott. Oh, okay. Okay. So Absinthe is the rocker who likes to, who rocks, rocks by day and rolls by night. Okay. Yes. He rocks by day and rolls by night. And he said that he would show up sometimes drunk or high because like he would like have a show Naturally. and then he would immediately go to his night job as a security guard. He would just be lit and then he'd go sit. Understandable. Um, but he swears on the night of March 18th, 1990, the night of the heist, he was not drunk or high. Oh, okay. He's also quoted as saying that it was the most boring job in the world. Which I'm like, okay, do you, boo? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess if you're like, well, you know, I've worked as like a um, uh, a valet before. And we would have night auditors at our valet company and they would come to work and they would sit there and they would watch movies all night and they would make more money than all of us because they worked overnight. And we'll, yeah, and I'll tell you how much they got paid. So Randy was also a musician, but he seems like the cool one. So he was a musician and he got a degree in music with a concentration on performance from the New England Conservatory of Music. Oh, okay. Um, and Randy is quoted as saying, quote, there were no special requirements for the job. And in training, I was just told to tell people to back up if they got too close to the paintings or the art. Oh, um, okay. Interesting. Um, it was better pay at night as a night guard because the day guards would get paid seven or $8 while the night guards got paid $11. Ah. Uh. That doesn't seem like a lot of money, but maybe in the 1900s it was. Yeah, like the 1900s. Yeah. This was 30 This was thirty years ago. Oh. Oh, oh. March 18th, 1990. 1990. I don't know what it would be. That seems about right, maybe then. <laughs> the wine is getting to you, Justin. No, 8 to $11 is what? Huh? Like twenty, like twenty to thirty dollars, maybe. Now? Yeah. Oh, I have no idea. 
Oh, okay. Look that up for me. I will. So, at 12.54 a.m. on the same night, March 18th, 1990, at 12.54 a.m., a fire alarm went off on the third floor of the museum. When Abbott went to go check it out, there was no fire. He had no idea what set the fire alarm off. Abbott ends up telling Randy about the fire alarm. So 30 minutes passed, and at 1.24 a.m., two white men dressed as police officers arrived at the museum employee entrance. The security guard, Rick Abbott, answered the intercom, and when he asked why they were there, the two men said that they were there because they were responding to a disturbance slash noise complaint. Abbott believed them because there had been some St. Paddy's Day parties going on. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why he gave to the police. But did you not remember or recall the fire alarm that happened 30 minutes ago? And that went off inside of the building, right? Yes, on the third floor. He went to go check it out. So, oh, huh. Keep that in mind. Because he tells the police... Oh, I let them in because I kind of figured that the noise they were talking about were for was from like a St. Paddy's Day party. And not that but they were the, there for the fire alarm that just went off. 30 minutes ago. Huh. Okay. Intriguing. Yes. Um, where am I? Oh, so, sorry. Eleven dollars is about twenty five dollars. Inflation. Um he also said that he didn't want to get arrested because he wanted to go to a Grateful Dead concert later that day. Okay, I really like these guys. Um, my thing is, is that if you didn't want to get arrested, why did you answer the intercom? Well, what are you supposed to do when the police are there? Not answer? You can't just like, well, he, he's the security guard. <laughs> but here's the thing. He's just going to we'll find out. We'll find out later that it was against protocol to let anyone through the employee entrance who wasn't an employee, even, even the police. The po- even the police? Even the police. Oh, but I thought you said like Randy, like Randy said that he didn't even really get trained for the job, right? So how was he supposed to know the protocol? Well, this is Abbott. I mean, well, we don't know. We don't know what he his training was like, but I'm just like if he was this forthcoming with the police. About like all this information about like oh he would show up drunk and high he had to have been this forthcoming in the interview. True. So true, sh- true, so true. shame on them for hiring him. Actually. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. But I mean, hey, Grateful Dead. <laughs> but I'm like, if you wanted to go to the Grateful Dead concert, why did you answer the door if you were afraid of getting? I don't know. That just true. does it never clicked I, to me. I, I, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's just that's fishy. It's a bit, a, bit, a bit fishy, isn't it? We're going to pause because my dog is humping his fucking bed. Oh, Bodie! Okay. No. We're not actually going to pause, though, right? We're going to leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to flip a coin to see if that stays in. Um, Side note, my dog now has balls. And he's just, he needs to get them taken off. Anyway, I digress. Back to Isabella. Back to Isabella. So based on that alone, wait, I'm going to pause. Don't put this in because I have to take off his 
okay. his chain okay. because it is just jiggling and it's getting on my nerve. I got you. When you want to say stop fucking biting me. Okay. We are back. We are back. So, like I said, it's important to know that when he opened the door for the officers after they came and told them that they were responding to a noise complaint, mm -hmm. he was breaking protocol. But he said he didn't know anything about this protocol when he was asked about the police, when he, when he talked to the police after the heist had happened. So Randy enters and he sees that Abbott is talking to the officers. He thinks this has something to do with the fire alarm that went off on the third floor, which I'm like, okay, Randy, thank you. Oh, yeah. So, oh, well, do we, do we even know if Absinthe heard the, heard the fire alarm or did Randy, is Randy the one that heard it? Abbott heard the fire alarm, but Abbott is the one who told Randy about the fire alarm. Because I guess Randy came oh, after Abbott. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, so when the two men walked in, one of the men, one of the officers, quote unquote, looked at Abbott and said something along the lines of, you look familiar. I think we have a default warrant out on you. Stand up and show us some identification. Oh, no. So he was instructed to stand up against the wall, spread eagle. He was pat down, and Randy just stood there with his mouth open. Randy was then asked to stand up against the wall, and he was pat down and handcuffed as well. Randy asked why were they, why they were being arrested, but the men didn't answer. Oh, this is so fishy. At this moment, Abbott said he realized that this could possibly be a robbery. And also, this is when duct tape was being put around their eyes, and the fake officers said that this was actually a robbery. Oh, no. The robbers then led the guards down to the basement. They were then handcuffed to the pipes, and Randy recalls that the man who handcuffed him was nicer than the one who had handcuffed Abbeth. And he seemed more courteous. And the nicer of the two robbers was telling Randy that they were going to be there for a long time, so he didn't want the handcuffs to be too tight. Mm. I then again think, why is he worried about the comfort of you when he's about to steal $500 million of artwork? Oh, I mean, maybe he cares about art. What did Randy look like? 
I don't know what Randy looked like, but he's just like, hey, I don't want to make these handcuffs too tight because you're going to be here for a long time. But I'm about to steal $500 million worth of art from this museum, so don't worry. I don't know. I think that I'm going to end up playing devil's advocate on this one because <laughs> cause I, feel like, I, I feel like that would be me. Like, I could get possibly roped into a... Si- uh, I'm not an I'm not an art theft, but I feel like I am the type of person that could get roped into a scenario where someone is just like, "Hey, come with us," um, and, to, and we're gonna dress up like police officers on St. Patrick's Day, and we just like go around and we take shots, and then we end up somewhere, and they're like, "Let's go into here and handcuff these guys," and I'd be like, "Okay," <laughs> and. Or maybe, maybe then again, like I'm there to get the money and like, I want the money for the paintings, but I don't want to hurt anybody in the process, you know? Sounds really fishy to me, Justin. Were you there? Where were you the night of March 18th, 1990? That is a secret that I'll never reveal. Mm. Sounds, smells like tilapia in here. <laughs> smells like salmon. <laughs> um. So Randy said that he was so scared of dying that he ended up here we go. He ended up playing the Mozart Requiem in his mind, not only to keep him calm, but to prepare him if he were to die. I do that pretty often. But he said he didn't realize at the moment that he was playing the Mozart Requiem in his head. He just said he, he realized it after the fact that, hey, I was playing the Mozart Requiem in my head. And for those of you who don't know what a Requiem is, a Requiem is something that is used to commemorate someone who has died. And Mozart's Requiem, in my opinion, is his greatest work. I feel like putting DSE in right here. <laughs> I was actually thinking about Lacrimosa, and I actually okay. have, in my, I have, okay. I have in my notes, <laughs> I have in my notes, Justin, cue the Mozart Requiem. Perfection. <laughs> but, I mean, it is a great piece of music, but that's not, I would never think to play the Mozart Requiem in my head if I think I'm about to die. Oh, no, totally. If I'm in a stressful, like, I have music playing in my head all the time. So if I was in that kind of situation and I was, like, feeling really stressed out and I was handcuffed, totally I could see that being in my brain is, like, D.S.E. Day. <laughs> what would Just I? Just over and over and over again. D.S.E. Day. Ba, ba, ba. D.S.E. Ba, 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 ba. So anyway, boom. <laughs> Mozart went off. He put his foot in went that word. off. So at 1.48, the motion detectors tracked the movement of the men on the second floor. Why did it take them 24 minutes to come in, trick them, tie them up, and then begin the heist? Hmm. I feel like 24 minutes is a very long time because how long do you think it took them to get them up against the wall? Spread eagle, pat them down, and handcuff them and lead them to the basement. I think, if anything, that should take 10 minutes max. Maybe like five. I was thinking like five, honestly, if that. I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Right, right. But, and so how long ago, you said since was the... uh the uh, fire alarm the fire alarm was the fire alarm was at 1254 and the men came in at 124 oh so like a lot of time has actually passed since everything really started yes but 
it's been 20 it's been 24 minutes since they've come in handcuffed them and put them in the basement but it that's a yeah that's a long time but the motion sensors didn't didn't catch them moving in the building well because until 148 what were they doing for that period of time huh i have my theories at the end oh i'd love to hear them so the museum catches their movement and this is how authorities know that the two men split up the museum was equipped with motion detectors so the thieves movements were recorded and every time the men entered the room there was a message sent to the control desk the desk in which no one was sitting because abbott and richard no abbott and randy were handcuffed in the basement oh my gosh so the best known of the works that were taken were from the dutch room which was on the second floor it was named the dutch room because it housed a lot of dutch and flemish artworks and treasures hmm. they cut rembrandt's christ in the so- in the storm on the sea of galilee and the lady and gentleman in black they cut they cut it they cut they cut them from the frames i'm sorry i didn't finish oh no so they i know oh no and um christ in the storm on the sea of galilee is one of my favorite paintings of all time because it has jesus in the boat with the 12 disciples but it also has a guest appearance from you guessed it rembrandt himself (gasps) wow so rembrandt actually drew himself into the painting with the um, 12 disciples and Jesus and Rembrandt is the only one that is looking out at us. Everyone else is distracted with trying to make sure the boat doesn't tip over, but Rembrandt is the only one that's looking at the viewer. And Christ looks like he's the only one who's actually calm in this situation. I mean, like if I was Jesus, I mean, I would be calm too because I'm, I'm Jesus. <laughs> That's gonna, that's gonna go at the end of this episode <laughs> i mean so and i mean it's just one of my favorite pieces because it's so moving and so captivating and it's but so it, in but it's a steel oh. work which i don't know it's beautiful that, yeah that's so interesting wow and a fun fact a lady and gentleman in black um was painted in 1633 and an x-ray examination of the painting reveals that Rembrandt originally painted a child leaning on a seated lady's leg and art historians speculate that the child died young and that the couple asked for the image to be painted out so it wouldn't bring any hurtful memories back oh wow which I'm like go off yeah they also removed vermeer's the concert and flink's landscape with an obelisk from their frames it's like so if you see the frames i'm I'm getting ahead of myself they put the frames back up where they originally were without the artworks in them oh no but the frame is like a part of it that's so that's so disrespectful so they just they literally so they were literally cutting the canvas to get it out of the frame 
Oh, but could you imagine walking into that room the next morning and the just the fr- empty frames? That's so daunting. That's just like it's just so eerie and haunting. Yeah. Um, they pulled an ancient Chinese bronze goo, which is like a little beaker. They pulled it from a table and they took a small self-portrait etching by Rembrandt from the side of a chest. So that was all in the Dutch room. And the short gallery on the same floor as the Dutch room, they took five Degas drawings and a bronze eagle finial. They also took Manet's Chez Tortoni from the blue room. The alarm started going off and the thieves ended up smashing the whole alarm system. And this system was supposed to alarm the guards that someone was too close to the artwork. But as we all but know, the guards were in the basement. They were in the they were trapped in the basement. Mm-mm-mm. So the thieves departed at 2:41 a.m. after making two separate trips to their car with the artwork. But before departing, they destroyed the tapes that captured their movement. They tried mm. to take more artwork, but some of them were too big. And before they left, they came down back to the basement. And they told Randy that they had his driver's license and that they knew where he lived and that he better not talk. (gasps) They left out the same door that they came in, which was the employee entrance. Abbott and Randy remained handcuffed until the real cops arrived at the scene at 830 the next morning. Oh, wow. So that morning, the museum's director, Anne Holly, she had only been the director for six months. And she described the feeling as something akin to never being able to hear Beethoven's Fifth fifth Symphony ever again or to ever watch Hamlet ever again. Which I'm like thinking, could it's like you can listen to a recording of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but to never actually be able to hear it performed live, I think that is a crime to society. Yeah, because because the uh, the museum and the galleries had been preserved so well for literally like almost a hundred years at that point, he and they were robbed of that of that achievement because of it. That's really sad. That's wild. Um, so the most valuable work was the concert by Johannes Vermeer, which was valued mm. at two hundred million dollars itself. What? Whoa, and all. All, all in all, the men took six pieces from the Dutch room. Five were paintings, and the other piece was the 12th century Chinese goo that we talked about. They took six more pieces the, from... The goo. The goo. I think that's how you say that word. I'm actually not sure. The Chinese um, goo. <laughs> they also took six pieces from the short gallery. They took five Degas sketches and the finial eagle. So those were the six from the short gallery. The oh, wow. 13th piece... Yeah, the 13th piece was Shea Tortoni by, by Manet. Now, the weird thing about this is that that painting was on the first floor in the blue room. They had taken 12, excuse me, 12 pieces of work from the second floor, and they just so happened to take that one piece from the blue room. But the motion detectors did not pick up the movement that night of them in the blue room. And the motion detectors oh. were working... Because earlier in the night, Abbott had made his rounds and the motion detectors detected Abbott's movement, but they didn't detect the thieves' movement. 
And when the police came to investigate the next morning, the motion detectors were in full operation. Okay. I mean, okay. My hot take, I think that it's possible that it was just a fluke and that the the sensors stopped working in the blue room. I still, I, I do think it's weird. I do think it's weird. It's definitely notable for sure, but I think it's possible that it could have just happened. But I also think that it sounds like to me they went in to the museum with a plan. They knew what they were going to take. We are going to get into two main theories and we're going to we're going to touch three, on that. Three main theories because my theory <laughs> I'm just kidding. So even though the thieves wore gloves, they did not cover their faces. So both of the guards seen their faces. Yeah, when Ab- I was yeah. When Abbott was asked to describe what the two men looked like, he couldn't remember what they looked like. Oh, absent. <laughs> His name is Abbott, A-B-A-T-H. You've been calling him Absinthe? Yeah, I know. I just It, it reminds me of that Absinthe, and oh. Absinthe makes me feel good, but I don't like the way that it tastes. Okay, noted. There were other pieces, <laughs> though. There were other pieces that were more valuable and one of these was a michelangelo i mean like if i seen a piece that was a michelangelo i would 100 percent take that if i was an art thief because like like it's michelangelo like a painting i think michelangelo do more things like statues and like mosaics and like bigger bigger things maybe they were only because remember you also said that they cut them out of the frame so maybe storage was a problem maybe they had to roll up the paintings and that's why they cut them out and we they will also take bigger objects. They they didn't roll up the paintings because the paintings were too thick to roll. Oh, the paintings they weren't like a piece of paper. They were like canvas with layers and layers of paint. So the museum's director of security, his name is Anthony Amore, and he says that Amore, the, his yeah, they said the paintings could not have been rolled. Because they were too thick. It was like he compared it to Okay. If I you were trying to roll this. if you were trying to roll a piece of cardboard. How did he know that? Did they put it in the frame? I mean, no, but like he obviously knows something about art. Uh I mean if they've been up on the wall since nineteen oh three, I'm sorry to keep <laughs> I've gotta be the devil's advocate. But there's there's some merit to I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying, for sure. But I th- also, they've been on the walls for for almost 100 years, so who knows what state they're in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe they get checked on periodically. I, I don't know either. It's possible. But I just thought it was There's weird. A, it, it is weird. It is totally weird. There's so many possibilities in this. I, this is such a good case. I'm so I'm so interested to hear what other people think about it. And also, the the Thineal Eagle was like a statue, and it was screwed on to the platform that it was on. So, at first, the... Oh, so they did take statues. Yeah, they took the Thineal Eagle and the Chinese Goo, which is like a beaker, like an ancient beaker. Oh, the Goo the was a statue. I yeah. didn't realize that. So, in 1994, the museum okay. received an anonymous letter stating that whoever wrote wrote it had information about the whereabouts of the stolen art, and they said that the art was safe 
and it was in a controlled environment. The author of the letter said that they mm. would return the art for $2.6 million. Sweet. And that if they don't, then a buyer in another country would be able to buy it and take legal ownership of it. The museum oh, agreed to do this, but the local authorities discouraged this, and eventually the museum never heard from the authors ever again. Okay. Hmm. So, of the 81 minutes that the thieves were in the museum, they only spent 34 minutes in the galleries. And it's strange because the head of security, Anthony Amore, says that in 34 minutes, the thieves could have taken entire galleries and left. So I, he found it weird that they only took 13 pieces wow. and they spent only, they spent a total of 31 minutes in the galleries. There had to, there's got to be something wrong with these guys. They, I feel like they wandered in off the street and they were just, they were just like, I mean, that's so weird. Why would you, why? If you if you had planned if you had planned to steal a bunch of expensive art pieces, why would you not go in and out and the world may never just know. do the job? I don't get it. Um, he also says that the average art heist <sighs> is about three minutes. So I think we're a little bit off Whoa. from the eighty one that we started with. I mean, I mean, I guess they were just enjoying the art. That's all I can think of at this point. They said, while I mean, we're yeah. here, might as well have a walk around. But they knew that it could never come back to that museum because they had their faces had been seen. But no, I wrote down that they knew what they were doing and they knew what they were wanted because they knew they didn't have to rush. They spent 84 fucking minutes in that museum and they only took 13. Yes, and they only took 13 And they hardly even got works. caught by the censors. They could have wiped out entire galleries. Hmm. And they also could have taken more expensive works. That's so interesting. Mm. Anyway, mm. it is a head scratcher. This suggests that these men scratcher. were confident and they knew exactly what they were doing. And this also tells me that they were not nervous because they knew the layout of the museum really well, or at least the second floor. One of the most mysterious snatches was the 12th century goo. Get. Um, this was at first, thought to be an afterthought like they were just like rummaging and like they were like oh i'll just probably take this but the more that they get into it and the more they do research that was also screwed to the platform and so that means the thieves took the time to unscrew it from the platform which means that this is something that they wanted and not necessarily something that they just thought they could take as an afterthought you know oh yeah, totally, totally. Because if you're going to sit there and take the time and unscrew every screw that attaches that thing to the platform, I mean, do you, boo? He just, he just, he really wanted the gear. He wanted the gear. In 1991, an art heist investigator named Arthur Brand was able to get photos of the artworks in a storage facility in Holland. Holland. That's in Europe somewhere, right? Yes. In 2010, he got word that the pieces were in the hands of members of the Irish Republican Army. After 12 years on the case, 
Brand theorizes that the works were taken by small-time thieves and then they were sold to U.S. gang members and then they somehow ended up in the hands of Irish Republican Army commanders. And here is where things get spicy. And I know you don't like spicy things, Justin. I love spicy things. Let me hear it. I smell some tilapia. Some codfish. Some codfish. <laughs> some catfish. <laughs> no, I smell some bullshit. That's what I smell. In 2020, Brand made a tweet that read as follows. Still working on the Isabella Stewart Gartner theft. And don't believe those who say you can only deal with them. You can always talk with me. The FBI and the museum and their allies are not going to solve this case after 30 years. The museum's director of security, Anthony Amore, responds to this tweet by saying, we have no comment on some guy's bleeping Twitter. Mm. I'm like, okay, y'all are getting heated. Yeah, dang. There's a lot of, there's a lot of talking. A lot of talking. But no recovering the solar artwork. Yeah, not a lot of investigating. So let's get into the theories. Yes. Theory one, and a thief named Brian McDevitt. McDevitt had committed a similar art heist in the 80s. He had tried to hijack a FedEx truck, steal the driver's uniform, and enter the museum and bind the employees with duct tape. The reason why he did not commit this heist is because him and his accomplices got stuck in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> He was charged with attempted robbery. Happens to the best of us. (laughs) I know, right? And he also lived only 10 minutes away from the Gardner Museum at the time of the heist. Okay. Okay. He denies ever having anything to do with the heist. Mm, As you would. As you would if if I was an art thief and I committed the biggest art theft in like the world ever in the history of the world. I would say I didn't do it. What? Wasn't me? What, Prove was it. Was it me? Hmm? Was it me? Do you have Do you have me on tape? No, because I destroyed it, dummy. I was at I, I was at Blockbuster that night. <laughs> I was at Nin- Blockbuster that night. Nineteen nineteen ninety. <laughs> so here's theory two, which is my favorite theory. The heist The heist was an inside job. The only thing that I can't wrap around in my brain is that the thieves spent 81 minutes, 81 minutes in the museum. I think the reason why they were so confident is because they actually were being helped by one or both of the guards. I think if it was one of the guards, it was definitely Abbott. It was definitely tequila, yeah. (laughs) And so Abbott was forthcoming about his mistake of letting them in, but he swears he had nothing to do with the theft. It was also important to note that 80% of museum thefts are inside jobs. Hmm. The men did not seem like they were rushed and they were able to bring two guards directly to the basement, which to me, if you were able to directly bring them to the basement, you already knew where the basement was. Yeah, but then again, then again, they could have gone and just visited the museum. If I was going to pull off a heist, I would visit the museum beforehand, and I would get, you know, get the layout and figure out where everything was. You but know. here, 
I think they already did know the layout. Um, because this tells me that they knew exactly what they wanted before they even came in. There were, like I said, there were also other paintings that were worth way more than the paintings that they took. And this gives me an idea. And this makes me think that they were directed by someone else to take specific paintings. Because if the robbers were coming in to take valuable paintings, they could have taken less paintings and could have left with more value. So they could probably could have taken three paintings that equated to more than $500 million. But instead they took 13 works and those works together accumulated a value of $500 million. So this doesn't tell me that they were going for like this big, just like take whatever I want and ransom the money. I think that this art had value to someone else. And these two thieves were just the people who took them. They weren't the people who were, who wanted them. They just ended up taking them. But they knew exactly what they were looking for because somebody else yeah. told them. Mm, that's an interesting idea. I see. I totally see where you're coming from. And also, there was also no movement in the blue room during the heist. But the shade Tortoni was missing from the blue room. Oh, and the guards might have known how to turn that off. Yes. Or I was thinking that since the censors picked up Abbott going in earlier that night, I think he took the painting then. Oh. That's why there was no that's why there was no movement in the blue okay. room during the whole heist because okay. you have all this movement that happened on the second floor, but on the first floor, there's no movement, but well, the so painting was gone. How do we know that it was him? Were there cameras in the blue room? Or like, how did we know that he was the one that set off those sensors? Or did he tell them that he went in there at that time and that that's what set it off? I What I'm thinking is that guards do rounds every night and that it was just a routine to go and check all the rooms. And so he ended up going into the blue room, which was on the first floor, he did his rounds. I think he took the painting then. And then he made up he made up the story to tell the police. I don't okay. think he made it up. I think it okay. actually happened, but I think Abbott knows who the men were and I think he was in on it. I don't think Randy was in on it. Yeah, because he had that detailed account and he was talking about how the how the handcuffs were um, put on gently, probably because Aveth was like, oh yeah, Randy's a homie, don't don't lock him up tight, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, it's just like, there was no other movement in that room other, that night other than Abbott's movement. I mean, if I'm thinking if Abbott didn't take that painting right then and there, he knew how to disarm maybe the motion sensors. Yeah, totally. But if that's the case, why? Why didn't he disarm them on the second floor? Exactly. Uh-huh. I think Abbott took that painting that night when he did his rounds. Mm. But he swears he has nothing to do with it. Um, mm. And the night before, here's, here's the shitter. The night before, Abbott is seen on security footage letting in an unknown man through the employee entrance. 
Okay, okay. That's... He is seen on camera letting an unknown man, a man that has never been identified to this day, he is seen letting that man in through the employee entrance. He exits through the employee entrance as well. No, that is it, no. He explained that he never knew who the man was, and he says he doesn't even remember doing that, even though he is caught on camera letting this unidentified man in. No, wow, no, 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 no. That's, no, no. That's some crappy, that's some bass. I'm I'm not, not here for it. I smell tilapia. Mm-mm-mm. And he says that he does not feel personally responsible for what happened. He just says that he feel bad that it did happen. Okay. No, I don't like this guy anymore. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I don't feel personally responsible, even though I did break protocol twice in two days. And I ended up letting these and men he commit let, the... Let somebody else in that wasn't a police officer through the employee entrance. Yeah. He broke protocol twice. Yeah. Yeah. No more sympathy. Um, before the museum heist, actually, Abbott had a, he was, I guess he was like at a party or something, and he had drank a mushroom concoction juice, like psychedelic mushroom juice. Relatable. And he ended up bringing the rest of his party to the museum. So they had a, they had like a rager in the, the Isabella Gardner Museum. Oh my God, that sounds like a blast. In a museum, uh, bro. I'd, I'd be scared to move. <laughs> I can't get jiggy with 500-year-old artwork looking at me. I would have the time of my life. Jeez, goodness gracious, that's amazing. And also, the reason why I really think this was an inside job, you have to look at the pictures that they took the morning of while Abbott was still duct-taped um, handcuffed to the pole. The, the tape, it is wrapped around his eyes and his nose, but not his mouth. Mm. So it was like, it's like they took the, the tape and put it around his head to cover his nose and his eyes, but his mouth was still operable. Well, otherwise he would die, right? Why didn't you, if you brought duct tape, why didn't you duct tape his mouth and his eyes and leave his nose open? Oh. Oh, yeah, that's pretty stupid, huh? That makes way more sense. And then also, also, there's a, just like a random piece of tape going around the circumference of his face that serves literally no purpose. It's just a strip of tape that's going around his face. They thought he was the artwork. I think I was I was right the first time. <laughs> they thought he was the art. They thought he was the art. Um, Yeah, I mean, I just thought that was strange because if you didn't want them to speak, why didn't you duct tape, take a single piece of duct tape and put it around their, his mouth and then duct tape his eyes? He was already handcuffed. He couldn't get it off. And then what was that? Maybe the, they were thinking like to duct tape his jaw shut so he couldn't open his mouth. But that's just so like... You can still open your mouth. Like, that's just dumb. You can't do something that stupid and then pull off then the largest art heist in the world. No wonder just, it would take them, no. like, 28 minutes, though. And then they left them alone, like, knowing that they could still speak. 
yeah, that's just, it doesn't make any sense. There's so many things that don't make sense. And this is where we get to theory 2.5. Oh, okay. In my opinion, this your is humble, a bit, your, my humble your, onion. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> there weren't any robbers at all. It was a publicity stunt. And the museum will, and in my opinion, the museum will mysteriously get these pieces of art back one day and no one will know how they got them back. Okay. 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 <laughs> Justin's like, mm. what are your just, thoughts on that? That's a pretty bold onion, I gotta say. But um, it's possible. Definitely possible. I thought that you were gonna say that. I honestly thought that you that you were gonna say that there were no robbers at all. That, um, Absinthe and Randy pulled it off together, and that they would they made off with the paintings and they lied to police, and they set up. And the okay, so the thing that the thing that really gets me is, where does the fire alarm come in all this? Was that just like another fluke? Like, did the fire alarm just go off? Were they already in the building? Was that? Ab, was that ab 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 labyrinth absinth labyrinth? I don't know. That part really confuses me. There's a lot of pieces that don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Why did the fire alarm go off? And also, I didn't say this, but the museum was in the process of updating its security system that night. Okay. So, oh, so it was the perfect opportunity for somebody that knew that to pull something like this off it was the this was march 18th 1990 was literally the perfect night to do this heist and how did number one how did they know that well i didn't i didn't think i said this in the beginning but there was um a call switch a call button on the desk that the security that the security guard sit at and so if you press that button it'll immediately notify the police. How did the robbers know that, that there was this button? And how did they know to get Abbott away from that button? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm totally not buying that. That's some carp. No. They could have p- pressed that button at any time during the robbery. And that's definitely why it took so long. Because there was no robbers at all. I don't think anybody came in. I don't think anybody came in. And for you not to be able, you you looked at these men and you were not able to give like a description of the men at all. You just can tell me that they were white men. It was two white men. Did he have a, like, did he, did one of them have a big nose, a small nose, a high forehead? Did they have hair? Were they bald? Were Neither they of shaven? Them. Neither of them could give a description. The fire alarm went off. There was no fire. You let you broke protocol two nights in a row, and you let people in through the employee entrance. And it was also a part of protocol that if the police did show up, you are to call the police and make sure that the police was actually there. Hmm. Okay. So now I see where I see where your theory is coming in for sure. How it's possible that somebody else could have been behind this as well i mean how are these security guards the the rocker and rollers supposed to know to take these these big pieces of art if nobody else came into the building right yes so somebody else was probably behind this 
I just think it's weird that they only, they took 12 paintings from only the second floor and one painting from the first floor. But that one painting that they took from the, well, I think it was a sketch. The one piece of art that they took from the first floor, their movement wasn't recorded. I just think that is really weird. Totally. The, the one piece, the one piece that they didn't take from the second floor, their movement wasn't recorded for it. The timeline just doesn't add up. I don't, tr- I don't trust, I don't trust them. And how would you, and how did they know where the employee entrance was? Mm. Because if you're the police, if you're the actual police, I mean, you You'd, may know where the employee entrance is if you're like the actual police. you would police. come in through the door. You would come in through the front door. Which again begs the question, why would he let them in through the employee entrance? Why wouldn't he say, come to the front and I'll let you in through the door? The employee entrance is for employees only. But he also, there was no, dis- there was no disturbance. Why did you let them in in the first place and there was no disturbance at the, at the museum? Yeah, that's so wild. What did you expect huh. to happen? Hmm. You could, you could have told him, oh, there's no disturbance here. And I didn't call the police. And totally. I'm the security guard. Totally, yeah. And he's got the button there. So he knows he that they does. didn't call the police. Exactly. Mm-mm-mm. That's some tilapia right there. That's some grouper. Some cod. <laughs> some trout. <laughs> some brim. Some salmon. <laughs> Did I already say tilapia? <laughs> Some crawled ads. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the museum currently has a $10 million reward for the return of all the pieces in good condition. And the statute of limitations for the robbery expired in the mid-1990s. So if they did find out who did it, they could not be prosecuted for this crime at all. No way. That's wild. Oh, wow. The law is so interesting. Um. So like... They could literally walk up to the police and be like, I know exactly where all this art is, and I'm the one who did this heist, and they would not be charged for it. At this, at this point, they would be contacting like TMZ, and they'd be like, hey, come to my house and do an interview, and I'll show you all these <laughs> expensive art pieces that you can't find anywhere else because I stole them in 1990. And so... If you're listening, and if you have any information on the location or whereabouts of these pieces from the heist, please reach out to Anthony O'More, uh, who well, is... What? Please contact us at paranormalcreactivitypodcast at gmail.com. First. All right, first. All right, go on. <laughs> and then contact Anthony O'More. Um, you can email reward at gardnermuseum.org. That's R-E-W-A-R-D at G-A-R-D-N-E-R-M-U-S-E-U-M dot org. And if you just feel so inclined to call him, his phone number is 617-278-5114. Can we say that? <laughs> can we say his phone number? I don't, I don't know if we can say that. <laughs> Is it? I mean, it's public. I guess it's public. It is. It's on the website. It's on the Gardner okay. Museum website. That's okay. where I got it from. Okay. Well, that's probably the that's probably the phone number for the web for the museum then. Yeah. Th- no, this is not his personal phone number. Not Justin. his personal phone number. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm I like, send like, him an iMessage. 
Yeah, if it's just tech, give him a quick text. Give him a call. Like, give him a voicemail. Hey, I know what the call, pings are. <laughs> call LOL. him. him. <laughs> give him a ring. <laughs> Get him on the you horn. You should come over. Look right. at these paintings that I got. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the case of the Isabella Gardner Museum heist, the largest museum heist ever. Oh, wow. That was such a good story. Oh, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time, Dreek. It's just, I really feel like these paintings are going to come back eventually. They'll be found. Oh, I agree. Totally. Totally, totally. And the museum is going to be like, oh my gosh. Where did these come from? Whoa. They're going to be like, they weren't even cut in the first place. No way. But no, you can actually, you can go to the museum and it's so creepy because the frames, all the frames that these pieces were taken from, they're hanging up still. Oh, because Isabella didn't want them to take anything down. Fuck what Isabella want. She just got $500 million worth of artwork stolen from her. Oh. Um, But it's just really haunting. Like, you can, like, see photos and just, like, it's just wow. Just yeah. wow. Yeah, that and, is wow. And you can also, um, they didn't, he, Anthony Amore did, like, a walkthrough interview, and they showed people, like, the cuts inside of the frames that held the artwork. And you can see that they used something very sharp and they cut very deep into the the frames. Oh, wow. It's mm. just, these art pieces, I mean, they need to be, they need to be found. They need to be found. But what can we do? So do you want to guess the top song of March 18th, 1990? Oh my God, I do, I do, I want to so bad. Is it, um? Oh, what's that song? It's like, oh, dance with, is it dance with somebody? Oh, I want to dance with somebody. Is it? I want to feel that. Nope. Is it, oh shit. Is it by Cher? Is it, oh wait. Oh shit. Um, <laughs> is it by Stevie Wonder? No. Oh shit. You get three guesses. I don't think you're going to get it respectfully. Is it, oh shit. Is it Michael Jackson? Oh, wait, nineteen nine. Is it ACDC? Nope. My, it's not Michael Jackson? Close. Really close, actually. Oh, fuck. I'm going to fuck this up now that you said that. Really fucking close. I'm going to fuck this up now that you said that. Is it Whitney Houston? You fumbled the bag, Justin. I knew I was going to do that. I knew I was going to do that. Okay, shit. I'll it? give you I'll give you a a bonus guess if you can tell me the time I was born. The time that you the time that you were born? Yes. Oh, I can't remember, but I feel like it was around 11. Was it probably <sighs> 11 in the evening? Maybe like 11 like 11 like 18 maybe? <gasps> 11, it was, I was born at 11:17. Oh, wow, in the evening? In the morning. Oh, okay. Well, interesting, interesting. I definitely was getting 11. So I was born on, should I say my birthday? I don't give a fuck. I was born on 117 at 1117. Okay, okay, okay. 
So I don't get an extra guess. <laughs> no, absolutely not. When I, but it was Janet Jackson. That's why I said you were really fucking close with Michael Jackson. Oh, man. I was so close and I just totally went off. I was like racking my brain. Okay. Okay. And the song was Escapade by Janet Jackson, 1990. That's so interesting. Yeah, I never would have guessed. Never would have guessed. I'm so glad that you added that fun fact, though. Absolutely. Well, that was the case of the Isabella Gardner Museum heist. Oh, I took a, great... a deep dive into this. It was like, w- oh, it was really that w- fun, actually. That was a, that was a deep dive. That was a really great job, Dreek. Wow. Wow, wow, Thank wow. You. Just like imagine not being able to ever listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You can only listen to recordings because we know what the art piece looks like. We can see what it looks like. The art piece is what they look like online. But to like, Never be yeah. able to walk up and look at those paintings and admire the beauty and the brushstrokes and the artistry. I mean, that's kind of the sad, the sad thing about music. You know, we can't walk up to the the orchestra pit and see the the performers the first night that Die Zauberflöte was premiered. You know, it's just an experience that we can never have. And oh man. But we could still play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. We could still hear it live. You, you know what I thought about? Live. True. Yeah. I thought about the time we went to go hear the Paganini Variations by Rachmaninoff at the Gilliard. Oh my gosh, that was a life-changing experience. And wow. the 18th variation was single-handedly the greatest live performance of any work I've ever heard. Just and incredible. I'm just thinking, I've listened to that piece a thousand times, maybe on just like YouTube or something. But the way my I got goosebumps sitting in the audience watching the pianist perform and the orchestra perform with him mm-hmm. is there's there's literally nothing that there's no musical performance that has topped that for me. Oh, the way the vibrations just come off the stage and enter your body and into your ears and your soul is just so incredible. Oh my, it's nothing like it. There's nothing like it in the world. And I think it's the same thing with a piece of really good artwork. Just like, even though it's a still piece of work, it still vibrates. It Those still colors. has movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They come into your eyes and it just absorbs into your senses. Ugh. It's just an like, experience. But too bad because we'll probably never see them again. Well, we will. I think we will. If we survive. If we survive. Or what if, the, what if they're just like, fuck it, I'm going to burn it. I'm going to burn all these pieces. Fuck it. I'm going to burn it before they die. <laughs> They're like, nobody, if I can't have it, nobody can have it. Good, goodbye, gear. Bye, gear. <laughs> no, it is, it is really sad. It is. Yeah. I hope that we find those pieces, really, so that they can be experienced by everybody and inspire people again. I do as well. Justin, would you like to take us out? Um, yeah, totally. I think I had a couple of things that I needed to say and I need to check my notes. Um, let's see, let's see. Oh, yeah. Okay, so first of all, Paranormal Creativity Podcast Patreon is up and running. You can find us if you search us on Patreon at Paranormal Creativity Podcast. You can also find that on our website, which is up and running, paranormalcreativitypodcast.com which is also linked at our Instagram, which is at Paranormal Creativity Podcast. And 
Um, oh yeah, so if you decide to subscribe to our Patreon, then you will hear this episode on Sunday, and that is Sunday, October 30th. And if you are not subscribed to Patreon, then you'll be hearing it on Monday. I also need to give a huge shout out to Laura for Woo! creating our podcast logo, which is I just love you, Laura. Just fantastic. Yeah, Laura did a fantastic job. She's a great artist. Check her out on Instagram. Find her at Laura at at L V A underscore A R T E on Instagram. And that's going to be in the show notes as well, along with some other information. You can find all that information in our show notes. And, uh, yeah, that is everything that I have. I don't have anything. Justin, you're the man. You're the bee's knees. The bee's, the bee's knees. The bee's knees cap. The bee's knees. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So it's been a blast. Um... Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you so much. I'm Justin. I'm Drake. And this has been Paranormal Cracktivity Podcast. PCP, baby. See you next time. We are back at it. I'm gonna skip to. We back at it. Like a separate Never gonna give you up. Never gonna let you down. But da 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 Never gonna make you cry. Never gonna say goodbye. Mm, tilapia, yeah. Because I'm, I'm Jesus.